before we dive into Hebrews chapter 9 here, I want to, as a way of introduction, take us all the way back to the beginning of the retelling of history in, in the book of Genesis. You don't need to, to turn there, but if you've begun your Bible in a reading, a Bible reading in a year plan, uh, you may have already made it through the first three chapters of Genesis, which will help you here. But you'll know that the Bible starts, uh, God tells us that the world was created perfectly in seven days. And it was a perfect world in which God made people, Adam and Eve. They were uh, perfect as well. And there's a scene in chapter 3 where we see that God comes to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And that is what life was like. God and people dwelt together. We were able to behold him, not with eyes of faith, but we, we saw him. He was, we saw him. We saw his beauty and his wonder. We were able to approach him, to hear his words audibly, to see him, however that worked, to know him and enjoy him and to serve him in all the ways that God had prescribed there in that perfect world. You'll also probably remember that in this perfect world, God gave one command telling Adam and Eve to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, telling them that the day that they would eat of it, that they would surely die. And we don't know how long after they were planted in the Garden of Eden that that fateful day came in chapter 3, where the serpent approached Eve and deceived her, and she ate of the fruit and gave it to her husband who was there with her, and they sinned against God and changed things forever. Genesis 3 retells it this way, the eyes of both of them were opened after they ate, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We have no idea what that was like to go from innocent to all of a sudden ravished with shame and fear and guilt. We all know shame and fear and guilt, but we've never known innocence. They knew innocence, and then it was like the veil that God said, you don't want to see what evil is. And Satan said, no, it's actually good for you to know what evil is. That's where freedom comes. And they saw the lie. And then they cover themselves with those, those fig leaves. And then God approaches, and he gets them to confess after they blame it on everybody else. They blame it on the devil made me do it, and he blamed it on her. And then God, God puts a curse on Satan, on the man, and on the woman. This perfect world is now under a curse. But in the midst of that, he gives a promise of one who will come and will crush that serpent's head. And then, do you remember what he did? He took off their fig leaves of self-righteousness, their attempts to cover up their shame, and he replaced it with the skin of an animal, an innocent animal that had to have died, blood was shed, and their self-righteousness was replaced with the innocent righteousness of another. A picture about the promise that one day a Savior would come and deliver them. And then they were sent out from the Garden of Eden. Farewell, innocence, away from the garden. The end of chapter 3 ends this way. The Lord God sent them out from the garden 
of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man and implied the woman. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, an angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And life has never been the same. We now live outside of Eden, outside the place of delight, the place where we see God, where we approach God, and now we live in a world where we walk by faith. And there is now a a fear of God that we have, of His his judgment. There's, There's enslavement that we know now to sin, and to all its effects and the shame and the guilt that comes from this. But we walk now with the promise, the promise that there is one who comes, who brings pardon and who brings purity, that we might approach the living God again. And this morning in the book of Hebrews chapter 9, which is where we're going to be, page 1005 in Bibles provided for you. If you didn't bring one, just pick it up and open up. We just kind of walk through verse by verse through the Bible. Uh, join me there. As we come to Hebrews chapter 9, what we are going to see is God showing how he fixes that problem that began in the Garden of Eden. He's going to give us some shadows about what God did um, under the Old Covenant through the Mosaic Law and the sacrificial system. And then he's going to show the substance that is Christ and how he fulfills it so that now we can approach the living God and know him once again through what Christ has done. So as we come to Hebrews 9, the first 14 verses is where we'll be this morning. The big idea is, is, is this. The blood of Jesus purchase, purchases and purifies sinners so they can serve the living God. The blood of Jesus purchases and purifies sinners so that they can serve the living God. It's what God does to fix the problem as we will see he gives his son Jesus. Now, to help us walk through the text here, we're going to have basically two major sections. Verses 1 through 10, where we're going to see the place and the practice of Old Testament worship. Verses 1 through 10, the place and the practice of Old Testament worship. See that as a shadow. Kind of the first thing God did through the nation of Israel to give them a way to approach Him by faith. But we're going to see it's still far off. And then in verses 11 through 14, we're going to look at The fact that in Christ we are purchased and purified to serve the living God. In Christ we are purchased and purified to serve the living God. That through Jesus there's going to be a way to approach God that is not far off any longer. So let's start with these first ten verses here. The place and the practice of Old Testament worship. Look with me at verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now, the first covenant that he's talking about here is what's called the Mosaic Covenant. It's the Mosaic Law, the Old Covenant. It's the Old Testament. So whenever you're reading through the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's the summary of this this first covenant here, how God related to Israel um, with the law. And you're going to notice here that this first verse really kind of serves as an outline for the first ten verses. He mentions here an earthly place of holiness. That's where worship happens. The place of worship. That's going to be your first five verses. And then he mentions here the regulations for worship there in verse 1. That's going to be practice. That's how you worshiped. Verses 6 through 10. 
So that's, that's kind of the way that we'll, we'll approach it here as we look at the place and the practice of Old Testament worship. We're going to start first with the place where worship happened under the Old Covenant. A lot of this is going to be review if you've been here for Leviticus and a bit of Hebrews, but it'll be helpful for us. Look at verse 2. The place of Old Testament worship. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which, in which uh, were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Verse 3. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Well, we will speak in detail just a little bit, okay? You're going to notice here in this place of worship under the Old Covenant, there's, there's two sections. Did you catch that? You've got the, two sections to this Old Testament tabernacle. You remember the tabernacle is basically a tent there in the middle of the community of Israel. And it had these two sections. The first is the holy place, and the second is the most holy place. Both are mentioned there. The most holy place is also known as what? Good, the holy of holies, right? So look at the holy the holy place here again in verse 2. He mentions some things that are kept in this holy place. The first is the lampstand. This is where there, was, uh, there were candles that were to be uh, continually lit, reminding the people of God's continual faithful presence among them. Then you had the table and the bread of presence there. There were to be 12 loaves put on this, this table, a picture of God's full provision for the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was also to be a picture of the place where communion with God was provided for them at his table. And that the way that they were going to have communion with him was illumined by the light of this, these candles that he had there that shined upon it. It's all symbolic, as it were, of the way that they were to relate to God. So that's all in the holy place in that first section of the tabernacle. But then there's a, there's a second part of the, the tabernacle there. It's the holy of holies, the most holy place. And he mentions in there that there's, there's incense, which was to be a picture always of, of prayers ascending up to God. Whenever you look in the book of Revelation, it talks about the incense, bowls of incense that are held by angels before the throne of God. Does anybody remember what those, those prayers of incense, or I just told you, what those bowls of incense were? Did you catch it? Yeah, prayers. All right. So you ever wonder where all those prayers went that you thought God didn't answer? He said, not yet, my child. How long, O Lord? When will you do something about evil? When will I be freed from this sin? Those prayers have not fallen upon deaf ears. They are in a bowl before the throne of grace, and one day he'll say it's time to empty it. But not yet. And symbolically here in this Holy of Holies, there's incense that's going up as a picture of the prayers of God's people ascending up to his heavenly throne. Also there, you'll notice there is the ark. The ark was basically a, a box uh, that was to be symbolic, again, of God's presence. And this wasn't just some, like, igloo cooler that they would carry around with them. It, this was, I mean, whenever somebody stole this box, you see people are dying everywhere. Because this, is, this, is, this represents God's very presence there. 
And within the present, within this ark, you'll notice there were three things there. The first is the manna. God says, that ark, which represents my presence, I want you to put three things in there to remind you about me. The first is the manna. Because I want you to remember that I provide for you everything that you need. That's the kind of God that I am. Also, I want you to put that, I want you to put Aaron's rod in there. If you remember in Numbers chapter 17, chapter 16, there was this big revolt against Aaron. Because they said, we don't like Moses, we don't like Aaron, we want another ruler. And God says, oh yeah, and then he swallows up the sons of Korah. Uh, The ground opens up, consumes them in judgment. And then he says, I'm going to show you who my priest is. I want everybody to lay down a rod there. And the one that buds is the one that I affirm. And Aaron, his his rod budded, and pecans came out on it. It was this picture of God says, that's my man. He's the one who represents you before me. Don't try and get you another priest because it's not going to work. He says, I want you to put that in there to remember that the way you relate to me is through Aaron, the priest. And then also the other thing you'll notice that was in there is what? Yeah, the, the, the tablets of the covenant. That's the, that's the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. It's God's will. He says, this is who I am. This is how you relate to me. He goes, those things, put them in the ark. Okay? That is in the Holy of Holies. And then you'll notice there in verse 5, above this box, you've got something. Verse 5, the cherubim of glory overshadowed the mercy seat. Now, where did, what, what is the mercy seat? Anybody remember? It's the lid for the covenant. Okay, the Ark of, of the Covenant. And notice here, I'll just read for you. This is from Exodus 25. This is when God's giving commands about how to make the Ark uh, and, and the mercy seat. He says, you shall make two cherubim of gold on the two ends of the mercy seat. So you've got the Ark, then you've got the lid, this mercy seat, and you put two cherubim on it of gold. Make one cherubim on the one end and one cherubim on the other. And the cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. So you've got, make these two cherubim. It's like their arms or wings are extended like this and they're looking down. Now where did we just hear about cherubim before a, a moment ago? Genesis. Do you remember when God sent Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden? He put a cherubim so they could not re-approach God. You can't come near to God anymore. There's a sword of death that will, that, will, that will slay you if you try to approach God because you are now unclean and unholy. You can't approach Him. He's too good for you to draw near to Him. And in these pictures under the Old Covenant, he says, I want you to build a place. And in this place, there's a room nobody goes into, we'll see, except for once a year. And that's where my presence dwells. And there's a veil that keeps you and me separated. And we're going to put that cherubim there just so you remember, you can't draw near to me. Your sin has made you unclean and you are separated from me. This is all pictures that he's communicating to his people about who he is and who they are. And all of these serve as a copy of God's heavenly throne. He's teaching them, as it were, through Legos about the real thing. You remember, if you look back in chapter 8, verse 5, this is what God said to Moses about the way that they were to make um, all of these 
when he's making the, 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 the tabernacle and the, the gifts according to the law, he says in 8.5, they, the, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, everything there, they serve a copy and a shadow over the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. We talked about this last time we were in Hebrews. It was like God pulled up the curtain between earth and heaven and he said, you see my dwelling? Make it like that. All of this is to be a shadow, a picture of it. A picture reminding them that God's permanent dwelling place with his people was not there. God's permanent dwelling was in heaven. But he's giving them a foretaste here. A shadow of which one day substance would come. Old Testament worship was restricted to this place where God graciously dwelt with and dealt with his people through the ministry of a high priest. Okay, So that's the, that's the place, that's where Old Testament worship happened. Now, look at verses 6 through 10 where we're going to see the practices, how it went down, how God prescribed for the, the high priest to minister on behalf of, of the people. Verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, meaning the whole tabernacle was set up like that, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. That's an everyday thing. They're going in and out. Verse 7. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Meaning, as long as the tabernacle is still up, we're not actually entering into the presence of God. And he says that tabernacle, verse 9, is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drinks and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So, once the tent's been set up, now the priest gets to serve him. Verse 6, he goes into this first section. This is his regular ministry. Multiple times a day, it's a busy place. There's no sitting down. There's no breaks. His work is always calling for him to be doing these things, making sure that the, the, the bread is cooked, making sure that the, um, the, the candle's burning, making sure the uh, sacrifices day and night are happening. That's his ritual duties there, all those things. You had two lambs sacrificed in the morning and the evening as burnt offerings for the sins of the people. And then you had everybody else who's just bringing their sacrifices. So this is, this is a happening place. Here in this first part of the tabernacle. People are in and out all the time. The priest is very busy. But then he turns our attention in verse 7 to, to the other place. That place where every single day they would come up and they would see that veil and they would know nobody goes in there. Nobody goes near that place because you go in there, you, you die. Because God's presence is in there. But we're out here separated from him with this veil. By the way, does anybody know what was embroidered on the veil? Cherubim. You've got cherubim guarding the mercy seat, and you've got cherubim on the veil. It's like the big, do not enter or you die. You can't approach God. He's too holy. 
So into the second here, he says in verse 7, this is his unique ministry of the high priest on the day of atonement. If you were here for Leviticus 16, we did a whole sermon on the day of atonement. If you weren't here, I encourage you to, to check that out. There is one day that's set apart in which the high priest and the high priest alone was called upon by God to enter into the Holy of Holies with the shed blood of an unblemished sacrificial animal. And what he was to do is he was just, he was actually, his first incense goes up so that there's like a smoke screen between him and God so that God doesn't consume him with his glory. And then he takes this blood of an innocent, acceptable sacrifice and he smears it on the mercy seat. Because before he does that, when God looks down from his holy throne and he sees that law that's in the ark, he sees broken law. Because everybody has disobeyed him. Nobody's remembered his manna and his faithfulness. Everybody's ignored his provision. Everybody's disregarded his will. It's broken. So God sees my people and broken law. But in mercy, he provides blood to atone. To atone means to cover. It's the day of atonement. It's the day of covering for our sin. The high priest goes in. He sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. So that now when God looks down, he no longer sees broken law. But he sees blood. Because the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. God promised death comes from sin, and death would come from sin, and that echoes until Jesus returns one day soon. Now, it tells us here in verses 8 through 10 that this first section is symbolic of the present age, meaning the tabernacle's set up, and it's a reminder you can't draw near to God in heaven. Access to God is not available under the old system. It's not available. A clean conscience before God is not available. Sins are not removed ultimately under the old covenant. Guilt is not appeased ultimately under the old covenant. Rather, what it's supposed to do, every single time that these sacrifices are offered up by this high priest who goes in once a year, it's to remind them of their sinfulness. Listen to this from chapter 10. You can look over at chapter 10, verse 3 and 4. In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Every year, year after year, the high priest goes in and he offers up this, this blood of this animal. And everybody knows people sinned against God. There's got to be people paying for this sin. We humans owe God for our sin against him. We need a perfect human to be in our place, but none of us are here. We've got this goofy high priest who we don't even know if he's going to make it out. He's sinful. He's got to offer, offer up sacrifices for himself before he goes in. See, this whole thing you can feel is like kind of shaky. And that's the way that God set it up. So that the people would be stirred with anticipation. Because left as this is, this is a bleak way of relating to God. I mean, he is, he is wonderful, and he's, he's beautiful, and he is loving, and he's caring, and he's the providing God. He's the God who's Father. But we can't approach him, because he's holy. He is too good for you and me. He's too good. Because he's good, he can't let sin just be winked at. Something's got to happen. So he provides this picture, as it were. Uh, uh, bandages until the surgeon comes. 
to hold the hemorrhaging. We relate to God under the old covenant from a distance, intending to create a longing for a new system where we might get back to Eden and see him again. He says that's what really the whole point of the Old Testament's about. If you want to summarize the Old Testament in one word, it's this word, anticipation. It's supposed to make you rightly anxious for God to move with something even better. And do you know what he does? <laughs> he comes. The Son of God comes and enters into the world, and he's going to provide the better way. This time of reformation, all the shadows of the Old Testament were looking forward to the one who was the substance. The word reformation there in verse 10 is not talking about what Martin Luther and that whole deal. Okay? It's talking here about, it. the word means a setting straight of things. A new order. A new system. God is going to do something different. God does not change. So the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. If any of you have been in like classes, religion classes at secular colleges or even colleges that claim to be Christian or you've heard, you know, Tom Brokaw or whoever talk about the God of the Old Testament. He's the same God as the God of the New Testament. It's the same God. God does not change, but he changes the way that we relate to him. And Hebrews, in a sense, is all about this reformation here. So if you want, really, all of Hebrews can point to that verse 10, the time of reformation, the promised time. His kingdom is coming in the new covenant through Christ. If you look back at verse, eight, verse uh, 8.13 from the last time we were in Hebrews, we talked about this new covenant that comes in with the forgiveness of sins. He says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You see, the entire old covenant was a temporary arrangement in God's redemptive plan. What we need is we need a new priest to mediate a new covenant, offering up a final sacrifice to give us a new birth, to bring us into a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus does this. He fulfills the whole thing. The light of the world has come, and he has eclipsed the light of the lampstand. The bread of life has replaced the bread of presence, so that now through him we can have everlasting communion with God. The manna who came down from heaven supplanted the manna that came under Moses. The keeper of the law of God, the one to whom the Father looks and is well pleased, affirms, not with a budding rod, but with a booming voice from heaven, saying, this is my son, listen to him. You see, Jesus is the reforming savior who appeared from heaven to bring us eternal redemption. And that's what chapter, the rest of chapter 9 is really all about. 9 down, all the way down through 28 is about that. Well, the whole book's about that. But uniquely in the flow of the text here, 11 down through 28, we're going to see there's three sections that deal with and describe what Jesus does through his appearing. Verses 11 through 14, 15 through 22, and 23 through 28. We're going to take just that first little bit for the rest of our time together this morning. Verses 11 through 14, we'll look at the others next week, unless Jesus comes back, which would be better. So, the second point here, so we see these earthly uh, place and practice of, of worship under the Old Covenant. Now, 
the second big idea here is that we are purchased and purified to serve the living God. We are purchased and purified to serve the living God. So this is, this is going to detail what Jesus has done for those who trust in him. For those who have turned away from their sin and trusted in him as the savior of sinners. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who, is, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now one of the things that you, we can't really see here in our and our English translations, or whatever translation you're, you're using there, is in, in the original language, word order is oftentimes used for emphasis. So the first word in the, the, in the Greek New Testament, in verse 11, is not the word but, it's Christ. Time of Reformation, Christ, is what it does. It's the emphasis. It says Christ, but. All right, so... That's where you get the, the butt there. But it's, he's putting Christ in the forefront. Everything that that Old Testament was a shadow of, he's it. He's the substance. See it here. Behold him. Jesus, he appears so that we can approach God. You're going to see this, this word appear. See it there in verse 11. It's going to show up four times in the rest of this section. And it's talking about what happens when Jesus, who is the reformer, comes on the scene and what he does. Verse 11, we see that Christ appeared, speaking here of Jesus' first coming. It's what happened in the past. His incarnation, his death, his ascension, his entering into heaven. Then verse 24, notice here, Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That's Jesus' present ministry ministry right now interceding for us we'll talk about that next week and then look how the chapter ends in 928 christ will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him are you eagerly waiting come lord jesus more on that that next week but what we're going to think about right now is these 11 through 14 and we're going to see what what does christ do through his appearing how does his appearing Allow us now to approach God. And there's, there's two things that we're going to think about here. The first is, Jesus purchases our redemption. This is in verses 11 and 12. Jesus purchases our redemption. Look at verse 11 again. When Christ appears, the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus has appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come. These are the blessings of the new covenant that we talked about back in chapter 8. The forgiveness of sins. 
right? The law being written on our hearts. The Holy Spirit being given to us. And he ministers, did you notice where it says? A greater and more perfect tent. Not the one made with, with hands. So Jesus is not in an earthly tabernacle. He has entered in to the one that Moses saw. Jesus has entered into the heavenly tabernacle. A greater and more perfect one. Again, more on that next week. Now what did he do upon his arrival there? So Jesus arrives triumphantly. The angels sing. The Father rejoices. The Son rejoices. The Spirit rejoices. Trinity reunited, as it were. Seeing glory, sharing again. I have no idea what that was like, but I was imagining is amazing. We'll see someday. What did he do upon his arrival? It says here he secured our re eternal redemption. He secures our eternal redemption. Now the word redemption, it means to loose someone or something. Very often it's used to speak of freeing someone from slavery or from, from some kind of bondage. So hear how God, the same idea is used in, in Exodus chapter 6. This is right um, when God is sending Moses to go back and to deal with Pharaoh. He says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. That's what he told Moses he was going to do for the people. He would redeem them. Bring them out. Well, that is the same promise that he has been making to us. We are in bondage as well, naturally. Out of the Garden of Eden, under the curse. We are in bondage, slaves to, not to Pharaoh, but to sin, to Satan, and to death. John 8.34 says it this way. Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And all of us, naturally, are enslaved to our natural passions. That's the way we, we come out. We're born that way, Lady Gaga would tell us. And she's right on that point. We are. We're born that way. We're in we are born enslaved to that which seeks to make ourselves happy at the cost of pleasing God. That's, that's what's natural to all of us. That's how we come out. Now, what's even darker is that the world has believed the lie of Satan. You remember what Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden? You will not surely die. God just doesn't want you to know the difference between good and evil. You see, Satan's temptation was that knowing evil is actually going to bring you freedom. So it's actually going to be a good thing to know evil and indulge in whatever you want, regardless of what God says. I mean, that is the message of our culture. Whatever you want, follow your heart, do, do your thing. With disregarding God, because actually that's where freedom is. That's natural to all of us. Nobody escapes that. We need redemption. We need an exodus out of that slavery to sin. And that's where Jesus entered. He appeared. He died. He rose from the dead. And now he has secured an eternal redemption. This is not a temporary liberation like 
Israel had with Egypt, and then eventually got wound up through the judges with all the different people, and then you wind up in Assyria, and then Babylon, and under Rome, and then somehow in the Gospels, they're like, we've never been slaves to anybody, and Jesus is like, what, where you been? But like, that, that whole thing, like that, that's not the kind of liberation that Jesus is giving us. There is, he has secured an eternal redemption, one that is final and forever. That God's people will never have it lost or stolen or retracted. It is a forever, eternal redemption. Freedom forever with Christ to see the Father. That's what's promised. That's what he accomplished on our behalf. Now, how can we be sure that it's secured for us? He says here he secures an eternal redemption. How can we be sure it's secure? Well, you've got to look at what the ransom price was. Every time there's a redemption, there's some sort of price that's to be paid. The ransom price that Jesus paid was sufficient. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came, he appeared, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if you're in Christ this morning, that means Jesus came not to be served, but to serve you. He shed his blood for you. And that can be yours as well if you would turn from your sin and trust in Christ. That promise is yours. You see, the ransom price that Jesus paid, it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats and calves. It was an infinitely better price invaluable one. Acts 20, 28 says, the church of God was obtained by his own blood. 1 Peter 1 that Ben read earlier, you were ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus is the greater redeemer who paid the greater price, not the shadow of animal blood, but the blood of a God-man. Because man's got to pay for his sin. Some man's got to die. But it's got to be one who doesn't have any sin. There's only one, and it's Jesus, the Son of God, who died and rose from the dead. Jesus does not enter into God's presence now only once a year, but rather he enters once for all into his presence. Jesus does not bring ritual sacrifices, but he he brings eternal redemption to those who believe. In Christ, we don't have a temporary day of atonement, but a permanent atonement for eternal redemption. You see, what Jesus did with his death on the cross and his resurrection and his ascension, it's, it's like... It's like he reaches back into all of history past. Every sin, all the way from Adam and Eve's first sin, all the way to the last sin that we committed by God's elect. And there on the cross, he sheds his blood and covers all of it. Every bit of it, every sin that has been done or will be done. Jesus on the cross dies and his blood is shed. Because he said... The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Somebody's going to die, and it's either going to be you before a holy God, or a holy God would come and rescue you from himself. 
See, this whole thing about, like, the ransom. Well, who did, who did Jesus pay the ransom to? I'll tell you who he didn't pay it to. He didn't pay it to Satan. Because Satan's not running this show at all. This is God's, this is God's universe. God is the one that we offended. God is the one who requires blood. Jesus comes and pays the debt that we owe him. God provides the, God says, you owe me more than you can ever pay. And then he pulls out the checkbook of grace and he says, paid in full. That's what he does. The substitute has been slain. Redemption has been secured. Now, now, though our redemption has been accomplished, it's not yet fully experienced. So we live by faith now, believing these promises, until he returns. Listen to this from Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What that means is when the gospel comes in and you hear it, if you believe it, the reason you've believed it is because the Holy Spirit has come upon you and has taken out a stony heart and given you a living heart and giving you ears to hear and eyes to see. And now you believe. And there's, re- there's repentance. You, you turn away. It's like, it's like being on... Have I ever shared the illustration of the cliff thing? So my dad, when he was growing up... This is where I marked my place. Um, my dad, when he was growing up, he used to go hiking up um, in the Anirondack Mountains. And he and his dad, one time, they stayed in this little cabin. And uh, they woke up early in the morning, they start hiking, and it's before dawn, and it's really foggy. You can't see, like, but this far in front of you. And they start walking along, and uh, they eventually just kind of get kind of tired. And they just stop, and they sit down on a rock. And the sun starts rising up, and a breeze comes in. And all of a sudden, all the fog just moves away. And they see this beautiful scene. And they see that they are literally three feet from a thousand-foot cliff. And they responded by stepping back and turning and going the other way. That's exactly what happens in salvation. That we are walking according to our own way, assuming we know what's best in the darkness. And there's something that arrests our heart and calls us to stop. And then God in his mercy brings a breeze of grace to remove the clouds of darkness. And we see what's before us and we respond and believe. That's what salvation is. That's what God, that's what, that's what he does for a sinner. That's why we say we're saved by grace. We don't figure that out. It's mercy given to sinners. Well, he says, there's a day coming when we will be redeemed. And that Holy Spirit who lives inside of us is now given to us to conform us into the image of Christ, to make us look more like Jesus. We have been redeemed to now live for Him, not live for sin any longer. We've been set free from sin. And as we await that day of redemption where the bride will see the bridegroom, we are now dedicated our lives to Him. That's why it says here in Romans chapter 6, so you must not consider so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 1 Corinthians 6, you were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, you've got to know you have been 
You have been purchased by the blood of Christ. And you have been set free from slavery to serve the living God. Not to serve sin any longer. Should we continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. Titus 2 provides a, a good transition into the last couple verses. He says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all the lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus redeemed us to purify us so that we'd be zealous for good works, which is the last little thing to consider here in verses 13 and 14, that Jesus purifies us to serve God. Jesus purifies us to serve God. Look at verse 13. If the blood of bulls, of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? One of the themes we've heard already this morning is that sin makes us unclean before God. It means we cannot approach him. We cannot serve him. Isaiah 64, 6 says it this way. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That means outside of Christ, even our best days are cloaked with selfishness. The uncleanness of our dead works must be dealt with. And under the old covenant, God gave pictures of this to help his people understand that they needed that internal cleansing. There were laws that if you came in contact with anything dead, whether it be a human or an animal, you were ritually and ceremonially unclean. So God provided sacrifices of goats and bulls and heifers that provided ritual and ceremonial purification for his people's bodies that allowed them to draw near to the earthly tabernacle through the priest. Now, all of this external, ritual, ceremonial cleansing that was under the old covenant served as, as a picture for the people, reminding them that our situation is actually much worse. Because of what happened in the garden and what has happened every day since, we are separated from God, not just ritually unclean, but we're, we're broken completely. We weren't just ritually unclean, we were spiritually unclean. Inherited from Adam's sin and expressed in all the things we do with all of our dead works that he speaks of here. We need to be purified. And what he says is, there's good news. Jesus comes and he does that. And did you catch it in verse 14? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Did you catch that there? Do you see the Trinity? Do you see the work of God? Jesus the Son offered himself through the eternal Holy Spirit as a sacrifice to God the Father so that we could now be freed to serve the Father. That's, that's the work of God. See, Jesus did not merely provide some sort of external purification, but an internal purification. One that cleanses our conscience. The conscience is that inward awareness of right and wrong that all people have. Even as a non-Christian, I knew it was wrong to do some things, and I'd feel, I'd feel guilty. It's because we're made in his image. 
The good news is that Jesus has accomplished what we need to be purified. His blood purifies us so that now, through him, we can draw near, not to an earthly tabernacle, but to a heavenly one. Jesus purified us now to serve the living God, to live for him, to approach him by faith now and to serve now by faith as well, to love his word and obey his commandments. His spirit is within us so that we sing. So that's why when you sing these two songs that are coming after the sermon, sing them like you believe them, like they're true. They're, they're, and they're actually, they, they reflect the things that are in this very text. We sing that service to the Lord and service to one another, reminding each other of these, these truths that we've been talking about all morning. We, we serve the living God when we tell others about him and disciple others. We are purchased and purified to serve him. The trouble, though, is that as we serve him now, we are still prone to wander. Many of us are plagued by guilty consciences. For those of us who are sober-minded, we're keenly aware that even on our best days, our service before God is not pure. You ever, you ever tried to swim with sweatpants on? You ever try that mess? Some of us feel like that all the time in the Christian life. We just feel like we're weighed down with guilt and condemnation. All the ways that we have failed that we're keenly aware of. Some of you came in here this morning and your conscience is heavy with guilt like that. You could hardly even sing because of memories of what you did last night when the day has gone by. You feel like such a hypocrite that you can barely even pray because you feel dirty and distant from God. Interactions with one another, they're so empty because you've quenched and grieved the Holy Spirit of God who sealed you. And it's hard to even love people because you don't have the strength of God in you because we've quenched it with sin. Maybe you you yelled at the kids. Maybe you were harsh with your spouse. Maybe you you lied about something at work last week, week before. Maybe you already started on your taxes and you're already planning how to lie. Maybe you looked at pornography. Maybe it's that, that eating thing again. And you just, just keep giving in. Maybe you've gossiped about people and then you saw them this morning. Maybe you're hateful to a relative over the break maybe one who didn't know the Lord and you just feel like you really you blew your gospel witness. Maybe you didn't share the gospel with somebody that you really knew you were supposed to. Maybe you're just always judging other people. Whatever it may be, all, all of us, there's a million things that we could be convicted about. And there's a great difference between conviction, which is a, a gracious act of the Holy Spirit to alert us to sin, and condemnation which is the whispering of the evil one in our ear that all those promises don't apply to you. They're not yours. You're too dirty, too guilty, too far away. Blood, blood, blood. No, you're, you're guilty. You're a sinner. You haven't kept a word of God's word. And you know it. You can't sing that. You don't believe that. a song, I encourage you to check it out. It's 
written by Shane and Shane called Embracing Accusations. This is some words from it. It says, The father of lies, that's Satan, coming to steal, kill, and destroy all of my hopes of being good enough. I hear him say, Cursed are the ones who can't abide, which is a quotation from Deuteronomy 27 about cursed are those who don't keep the law. Cursed are the ones who can't abide. And he says, He's right. Hallelujah, he's right. The devil is preaching the song of the redeemed. It is that I am cursed and gone astray. I cannot gain salvation. Could the father of lies be telling the truth? The devil's singing over me an age-old song that I'm cursed and gone astray. And he's singing the first verse so conveniently, but he's forgotten the refrain, Jesus saves. You see, when, when the condemnation comes and you feel like you are guilty, what you got to say is, yes, you're right. Don't go around trying to justify yourself. You can't because you are guilty. But Jesus shed his blood for sinners like you and me. That's why he came. That's what he means when he says, the devil's preaching the gospel to me. When condemnation comes in, you say, Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ was condemned in my stead. Jesus shed his blood to redeem us from the curse of the law. He purified us, not ceremonially, but completely so that we can approach the throne of grace. One of the graces of being a pastor is that I'm, I'm forced to look at texts like this and be like, how do you apply this to anybody? See, John and I joke about it sometimes. I don't, I don't think I'm good enough Christian to not be a pastor. Like, I really feel like God in his mercy has just said, you're really weak. Why don't you just have to study the Bible all the time? <laughs> I just I feel like that all the time. Okay? And listen, I mean, I wrestled while I was studying this text because, like, my life before Christ and, and some of my most heinous sins have been since I've been a Christian. And I could just... I could just sometimes just crumble and just die. Like, I just hate it. But this is what the gospel's about. This is why you don't get over the gospel. You need it every day. So, brothers and sisters, one of the ways that you can tap into what I'm forced into by God's grace, which I love to do, is apply these gospel promises to one another. Like this is what a church is. We... we, we, we we minister to each other these truths. So today or this week, get with one another and ask questions like, what, what fears do you have about losing your salvation? What, what, what makes you feel like you are unlovable by God, from God or before God? And then remind each other, he has secured our eternal redemption. And then pray that over every one of them. Every bit of those sins that should be the reason God doesn't love you, pray over and thank him that he does love you in spite of it because of what Christ has done. What sins enslave your conscience with guilt and hinder you from drawing near? Ask each other that. And then tell the truth. Tell the truth. And then you take gospel and you pray it all over that person. And you lay it before the throne of grace. And you apply these promises to each other. That he has purified your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And what we do is we plead his blood here on earth with and for one another while he is pleading it in heaven until that day when he returns and we plead no more.
but we praise forever to the one who shed his blood for sinners like you and me. Dory Baptist Church, we, if we're going to be a church that serves the living God, that's what we need to be about. Take promises and apply them to one another. And if you say, I have no idea how to do that, my only question to you is, are you willing? And if you're willing, the elder's job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's our job. It's the only reason we're here, among other things. But we want to help you to do that. Let's be that kind of people until we see him on that glorious day. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and we thank you for precious and very great promises. Thank you that Jesus' blood has purchased us, redeemed us from the slavery to sin and death. Thank you that his blood has purified our conscience from dead works that we might serve you, the living God. Father, we pray that as we sing now of your grace, that you attune our hearts to sing it like we mean it and to rejoice in your grace that pardons and cleanses the dead. Pray in the name of Christ.